This episode is recorded on Wednesday, March 23rd, presented by uh, our friends at TechGC. Pedro, what do you think of TechGC? I think TechGC rocks. And most importantly, they gave us these cool mics. <laughs> <laughs> and their content is fire. And their it events is, are fire. They're really the most practical events. Yeah, like the Twitter feed is on fire. Like the LinkedIn presence is on fire. And we're very grateful for their partnership. I'm excited that we're doing this together. It's cool yeah. shit. Here we are. Yeah. <laughs> we're here. My audio <laughs> here is trash today. I don't know. It, like, it's just mad at me for some reason. I don't know. But we'll do the best we can. My audio is not doing well. It hasn't affected Keanu. Look behind you. Keanu's completely asleep. Crashed does, on, a, on a couch and a blanket. What a life. What a he life. Lives the, he lives the regal life, you know? Like, he is definitely, a, um, let's just call him a member of the nobility. <laughs> no work, own, lots of land. He has his own social media page. He has his own social media he, page. He, he has, that couch social is media only presence. That's a suede couch that only he uses. <laughs> um, you know, he has, like, a dog walker. He has, like, when I travel, he stays in, like, some dog suites. Like, this dog is living, bro. Does he do uh, surf and turf? <laughs> you know what? Surf and turf for for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get him. I get a Bruce Chris every night. He's doing he's doing really well. Um, mm. You know what? You know what this dog does love to eat, bro? Bananas. I've never seen a dog love bananas mm. as much as this dog. Like he fucking loves Ooh. bananas, which is the weirdest thing. He just likes them. <laughs> They're delicious. I mean, I like bananas, right. but like you couldn't, my last dog, you couldn't put a banana in front of him and ask him to eat it for anything. Like he's just not eating a banana. But anyway. So we got, we got our buddy Vivek. We got our buddy Vivek. Yeah. Vivek has got a new job, bro. I'm excited about it. He's, it's a cool company. It's cool. He's cool. He's one of the best GCs I know. First time I met him, I liked him right away. I knew he was going to be a GC also. Yeah. I mean, if he wanted. Yeah. Yeah. I knew sure. he, I knew it. And I think he's always wanted it. So, like, I'm glad he's there and um, he's going to rock that shit because I think Vivek is sort of similar to us in this way. Like, he likes having a cause. And this company, obviously, it's there to make a profit and be successful economically. But, like, man, it's got like a, we'll let him tell the story, but it's got like, there's a real substance there, right? Um, for lots of people. And I, I'm really excited for what 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 he's up to. Me too. And there was at Shopify for him too, um, which has a mission to, you know, enable small business creation. Yeah. And, uh, and so he's on the, he's on that path for sure. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, let's get on with it, man. So that you can go pick up your kids. All right. Here we are. We are here. <laughs> We're here. <laughs> We're here, guys. We're here with us. We're here with our good friend Vivek, who, He's got an ex <laughs> exercise machine behind him in a in a house he just moved into. Yeah, man. Thanks, guys. It's good to see you. High level fitness, man. Congrats oh, man. on the new place. Priorities. Bro. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited. I've got boxes. Sorry if you can see them. They're everywhere. <laughs> well, that's all your law books, right? That you read all the time. So uh, I've been moving since I think like May. <laughs> no end in sight. Who knows? At some point it'll end, I hope. Moving sucks, bro. Just and yeah, sure. Andy, all, all law books. You can see all the bookshelves I've got behind. They're, they're all going to be full. 
Yeah, I have empty shelves behind me too, so it's all good. Uh, all right, so thanks for thanks for being with us. Um, you're now the GC at MetaMap. Uh, before that, the VP of Legal at Shopify, covering a bunch of different areas. And when we met, you were in-house counsel at Rubicon Project, an ad tech company. Um, but the first thing I actually wanted to like bring up was something interesting when you moved from Rubicon to Shopify. One of the biggest reasons you did that was the mentor that you would have there, Joe, who actually the, the Pedro and I also have met before. Um, so what was that like? I was always been curious. I never asked you in detail, like what what drove that decision to go work at that company with him at that time in particular for you leaving Rubicon, which was, you know, a, a successful public ad tech company at that time. Yeah, I mean, I think it for me, and and that's not to say I didn't have a good mentor at Rubicon. I did the GC there, Brian Koppel, just a phenomenal person, someone I learned so much from. Um, but I saw a different kind of mentor in Joe. They had very different risk appetites. Um, and to me, as a, a young lawyer looking to figure out how do I make it in this in-house world, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that I just learned how to be a different kind of lawyer, learn from different kinds of folks, um, and kind of grew my skill set, appreciating that lots of folks, you kind of need to fit, find what works for you, right? Um, and so I tried a little bit more of a, I would say, conservative approach at Rubicon um, and wanted to learn from someone who was a little bit more uh, fly by the seat of his pants, a little bit more risk tolerant. Um, and I, I found that in Joe. And I also, you know, it was important to me to find someone like Brian, who really appreciated um, kind of the strategic long-term value that a lawyer can bring to an in-house team. Um, and Joe, you know, from my first conversation with him, was really just asking those types of, you know, what do you think the world is going to be like in five years type questions. So like, what did Joe specifically, well, so going back, what did Brian do specifically that you know, helped you learn. And then, you know, not that you needed different things, but what then led you to think, okay, well, I want to go work with Joe, who we know is not afraid of risk. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's it's a great question. I mean, for me, I was a litigator. So I was in at firms, I clerked, uh, and I spent my time kind of in, in court writing briefs. And so what I really learned from Brian was how to do the rest of the stuff, uh, kind of how to focus on uh, you know, contract provisions that matter rather than picking a fight over everything like you do in discovery. I, I learned how to be meticulous, but not too meticulous. Uh, I learned how to be detail oriented in the right ways with the right priorities, um, but to still be really focused on getting getting everything done at an A plus level. Um, and then I just learned how to basically be a corporate lawyer, which I, I hadn't really done ever at that point. Uh, every litigator, when they interview in-house, says, oh, I've done some settlement agreements. And, and we all know that's, <laughs> that's nothing, right? And so I, I just had to learn the basics. Um, and from Joe, I mean, what I really wanted was taking that basic skill set and applying it kind of with m more of my <laughs> sense of risk tolerance, which is a little bit, I think, uh, as you said, he, he is certainly not afraid of risk, and, and I'm not either. Um, and so focusing on, again, the, the big picture issues that a company really needs to be worried about and learning how to filter out the noise um, and not worry about every risk in the world and really focusing only on those kind of big picture risks, uh, kind of not process for the sake of process, if that makes sense. Major, how do you look at that? I'm curious, bigger companies you know, you've worked at, how do you look at risk and then like where you've learned risk tolerance? 
I think the proportions of risk are like very relevant to the size of the company and the stage that the company's in. Like, I bet you Joe would be less risk averse if he was the GC of Bank of America. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just like I think it's it's a function of where you work, like what your risk tolerance can be. And I think like if as a GC or a senior lawyer in a legal department, like you have a propensity to be, you know, sort of like I'm an over the hill type. I'm ready to take risks that maybe make my litigation department uncomfortable. Um, I think you have to work at a certain type of company. So like you got to know thyself. With that said, though, I think like it's it's healthy for lawyers to work in environments that don't align perfectly with their risk tolerances because you balance each other out a little bit. Um, I don't know, man. My take exactly. is like, you have the luxury and that's where of I was coming from, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think I think you have the luxury of of picking big picture risks when everything is about the big picture but when you get really big and you even the smallest details are being scrutinized i just don't think you can approach it that way no matter what your personality or pre you know sort of like predisposition is you just can't yeah, and i think I that was that was what i was trying to figure out and that's you know, yeah. like what what is what is your risk tolerance you only really know that when you work for people at different ends of the spectrum right and and um you, you got to find it out for yourself figure out what kind of place makes sense for you and, and your inherent uh, kind of set of values uh, and then push yourself and, and maybe maybe you find you're less or more risk tolerant than you thought you were. Do you think uh, that you have to see the the results of the risk? Like so by that, I mean, like I've been through a litigation, so I've seen that. Or do you think that you need to see a regulatory fine or do you need to see something and then your risk tolerance? I would imagine it, it did for me, like it, it, it shifts over time. The more I experience as well. Say, agree with your point, Pedro, about the size of the company and the size of the risk, too. I yeah, think I think so. Probably. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons I liked, you know, coming at this as a litigator. Um, you know, I, I spent several years just seeing the litigation side when things go wrong. And so to me, the idea of, oh, someone could get angry about this, that wasn't really scary by itself. I needed a little bit more. And I think that's what sort of put me on the more risk tolerant side of, of our in-house team, but I had less experience on the regulatory side. And so I was, I was probably not sufficiently uh, risk averse on, on that side of things. And so I think seeing kind of how things go wrong, being around people that have seen how things go wrong, learning from just a diverse set of people that have seen it all, um, I think really helps you kind of curate yourself a little bit better. But it's situational too, and circumstantial, right? Like, I mean, I might be more risk averse in area A than B. Like, for example, if there are criminal consequences for a decision that's being weighed, I'm going to guess that most people in that room are going to play it more conservatively than they would than if there weren't criminal consequences. Right. And so if the implications of a decision, even a small one, affects a large amount of people um, and potentially a large amount of people negatively. I would hope that people would be more careful and very intentional about how they manage risk there, where if like if it's low impact, then like, you know, you can be a little bit more uh, experimental. I, I, I just I worry about like archetypes of like, hey, man, I'm because I'm aggressive. Right. I, I like to make bold decisions. And I, I'm really into the idea of like pushing things forward by experimentation. But I'm not going to experiment with people's freedom, okay? Like, that's just not a thing I'm going to do. I don't have to do that in my job day to day. But I do make lots of decisions that affect billions of people. 
And so, like, I'm not going to play games with that and be like, all right, cool. Let's just be fucking theoretical and experimental here. Like, no, I've got to go regardless of what I think the risks are and talk to external stakeholders, experts, people who understand this issue 50 times more comprehensively than I do and get their feedback before I make a decision. Because if I just go based on my judgment alone um, and make a recommendation and we go forward, I'm probably making a mistake because I don't know all the angles. And so I think it really matters, like figuring out what the effect of a decision is, regardless of what the decision being made or like what the like permutation of your decision is, is really important. Because I think that is a way to measure how it's so true. And I mean, I think that's, that's well, exactly. And that's why I think thinking about it, maybe maybe I started the conversation wrong. I don't think it's about risk tolerance versus risk intolerance. I think it's about kind of understanding and being able to really filter through an accurate lens that's informed by conversations right. with real people that have real experience. It's that filter piece, right? And so my my sort of saying I'm risk tolerant to me is more just saying I'm not instinctively risk averse, which I think many lawyers are. And that was the important point to me. I need to learn to not be that. Um, but learning how and where to accept risk has to be a process of of inputs from a, a wide variety, a diverse set of voices that kind of are not just lawyers, not just business people, but everyone that's affected by your decision, I think. Totally agree. Pedro, you, what you said made me think about the difference between being a GC in a smaller company versus you know, the, you're the lone GC. Vivek is the lone, the, the first GC at this company. So yeah. like having been in that, in that place myself, like you have to make a million decisions with not a lot of information and it doesn't have the same implications that a decision at Meta does. Yep. So we get used to making quick decisions on a lot of things. Now, still taking a lot of inputs and still having a diverse set of inputs and still talking to your crew and talking to your internal teams and your ex, you know, our networks and our friends that we talk like bounce ideas off of. But we often have to make a decision you know, without uh, uh, all the information. And, and in fact, in some companies, the lawyers don't even take the position that they should be making the decision. They take the position that it's the business's decision. And they're over there, like kind of giving this advice and they're the trusted advisor. And I just think that's bullshit. Like Absolutely. It, for what we're doing, right. We have to, we have to participate heavily in the decision. I mean, it's absolutely. Hard. You can't, you can't be <laughs> working with folks and not be opinionated. I think it, it, you can let the business make the ultimate decision. And I think, again, to Pedro's point, it'll matter how sophisticated your business teams are, how big they are, how specialized they are. But if you're not coming to the table with at least a perspective, what's the point, man? Why are you there? That's right. That's right. Like one of the one of my pet peeves is when like uh, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say one of my pet peeves is when like lawyers and policy people show up with a to a meeting, a decision meeting with options. I, I can't stand that. Like, it's okay. Provide all the, provide a landscape of what all the choices are, but man, make a fucking recommendation, dude. Like, you know, like put a stake in the ground and be like, these are your choices. We think you should do A because of one, two, three. Like this is, I think, part of what you're saying, Andy, and it's very true. And we, like the lawyers and the policy people have the tremendous luxury of being able to sit in a perch within companies where we can be reflective, where we can call people outside the company and ask questions. 
or we can seek external advice from outside counsel or whoever. So we have this like fancy perch and we waste it when we just say, here are your five choices. We spent three months telling you what they are. You decide like what kind of job is that? Like that's not that's not a thing. It's lazy. This applies to outside counsel. This applies to your sales team. This applies to your product team. Like you got to have a point of view. You have to have like, and when someone comes to me for a vendor contract, it's one of my biggest pet peeves. I want to, I want to hire this vendor. It costs $55,000 a year. And and I have a couple simple questions. What do they, what do they do? You know, like what data do they process? Like little things like that. And, And why do you need it? What is the driver? What is the business driver? Where's the revenue? Where's the savings? Where's the product advancement? Where is it? When they got nothing, it's just, you know, I try to be nice about it. Come back, come back when you got a little more detail. But, you know, it's frustrating on repeat if somebody keeps doing that and keeps just saying, like, here's what we have to do. Or in your example, Pedro, they're like, we can do A, B or C. And, you know, I'm going to go, go, you know, use the restroom now. Like, <laughs> not, it's not how it works. <laughs> well, dude, if they have to use the restroom, you got to let them use the restroom, Andy. Just be cool, bro. <laughs> I don't. I don't let anybody do that. You don't let people use the restroom. Where the hell kind of cooperation are you running over there? You know, I'll tell you, not when they, not when, not when. Uh... <laughs> I'll say one more thing about this, like risk tolerance, and I think Vivek's spot on. Like, it's not a matter of like how I feel about risk. It's a matter of like what analysis I apply to each risk given the circumstances. Um, one thing that uh, my team is working on incorporating into all of our analysis now is like disproportionate risk to some groups versus the other. We tend to think of decisions in terms of how they affect the majority of your stakeholders, right? So how does this affect my customers? How does this affect my uh, our users? How does this affect whatever? What we, I think as an, and I'm talking about privacy at large here, like privacy profession at large. We tend to look at like, how does this affect everybody's privacy? How does this affect, you know, the public? But sometimes there's disproportionate impact to groups within the groups. And like having that analysis done as well is important. So it's like, how does this affect everyone? Here's generally what it is. Does this decision affect some groups disproportionately more than others? And how? And is that impact negative? And how? And understanding you might have a small group of stakeholders. So you might make a decision, a risk decision. And if you only make it based on how it impacts the majority of your users, it might seem like a net positive. Everybody wins here, except 1% of the population. 1% of the population can't use your product anymore. And now they're, you know, whatever. They're locked out of your ecosystem. So, like, let's say, and this is super hypothetical and not real, but, like, let's say Meta made a decision. And it was overwhelmingly positive for 99% of our users. 1% of our users is a gigantic amount of people, right? And so, like, like, like more like larger than many countries populations amount of people and so if the negative to just a very small percentage of our users is extremely negative or dangerous or harmful or whatever like we have to really think about it and try to find another way especially if it's like i don't know like severe and this is not something that i think is always incorporated into privacy risk assessment it's like okay user privacy is increased cool but like Maybe the way now you're framing the questionnaire disproportionately impacts African-Americans from gaining a benefit. And that's a smaller stakeholder group within your broader customer group. But like you can't end up with a disproportionate discriminatory impact, right? Like that's not a goal. So we have to find another way. Um, And so I think thinking about like the minority is that that baked into your. 
it's baked in in our decision. Is that baked process. into your exactly? That's kind of what I was saying. Like yeah. at a, at a company of your scale, you should and can do this, which is like it's baked into the DPIA process. It's baked yeah. into the pro- privacy by design process. It's baked into yeah. the requirements docs for you know product development, yeah. right? Like that's a conscious choice that I think you know goes without saying, but I'll say it should be done. Yeah. And I think actually the size of the company doesn't matter there, right? Like if your company makes a decision and it just, it excludes all women, but but it's a good privacy outcome for all men, it's a bad decision. I'm just making that hypothetical up as well. But same thing with you. I mean, like any company, like if you just end up hurting a group of people by a decision that helps a tremendous amount of people, it's still a bad decision. Um, My take. Maybe I'm crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why that the whole like 80-20 philosophy on life, like I, I just hate it. It, it, it makes garbage. sense in some ways, you know, focus on the 80%. Yeah, exactly. It's if that 20% is, uh, you know, massively impactful to the people that are in that 20%, you, you can't just yeah. ignore it. And so it's, it's a matter of calibration, right? As with everything. Totally agree with you. And we can use an easy example to flesh that out. If I'm a surgeon, I can't apply the 80-20 rule can't if, if, if i'm gonna save 80 percent of my patients but 20 percent are gonna die like what the, you, that's not a that's not a way forward and i think like in privacy it's the same thing if 20 percent of your users or your impacted stakeholders or your community that gets affected by your decision is being harmed well you, you got to rethink that choice man and but it but it you won't see it if you focus only <laughs> on the 80 percent, which is your point and i totally agree with you with that. 80% of this surgery is finished. So it's time, to, time, <laughs> to, done. time to sew up the patient now. 80% of the surgery is done. We did it, guys. <laughs> sew them up. It's 80%. We're good. Like we could think of innumerable examples where 80% doesn't cut it. Yeah. I think like also uh, law school probably teaches us a little bit more to focus on the 20% and how to focus on the 20% as opposed to maybe maybe other people are cool with with 80 20 because in certain areas of a business maybe that's less they've focused on that less i don't know maybe i don't know what law school taught me but it definitely didn't teach me focus <laughs> i wanted to ask you guys a question about law school i also tell you something funny when a couple of years ago maybe at this point with covid five or seven years ago the three of us were hanging out in dc uh at a bar with a friend of mine from law school who showed up from Baltimore and we had many drinks and then we went out to dinner and we had more drinks and it was, and my, my friend who was there, he's a little bit rowdy and he's a big personality. And I wanted to tell you guys, he's now a judge. (laughs) He's a judge. (laughs) And I just think like, he's a judge. And so I just, I think it just goes to show like, (laughs) I don't know what law school does to people, but, um, I don't know. Do you have do you have people that you're surprised by? You know, like he's smart. He's obviously a really smart person and he was chosen as a judge for a reason. But he's also a really goofy person and he's also a quirky person and somebody that um, doesn't take himself seriously at all, which is not, I think, what people think of. Like you think of a judge maybe differently. But um, were you guys surprised by, you know, where people landed? I think for me, what what I took away was. Everything I thought I knew about success in law from law school was completely wrong. The people that I thought, oh, these guys are the smartest. They're going to they're going to kill it. Uh, you know, they're like doing something at a law firm somewhere. The same thing that they were doing, you know, 
10 years ago. And it was the, the weirdos, the people that uh, were kind of not even participating in the social scene, the people that didn't ask questions, the non-gunners, people I didn't know, honestly, in some cases, they were the ones that ended up doing the interesting things that I kind of now look back and say, I wish I got to know that person better. And so I think law school doesn't do a good job of not only training people to do things outside of that box, but enabling people to see talents outside oh, yeah. of the narrow skill set that they're looking for. I didn't even know what, what skill set is important as a lawyer. I don't know other than how to write an issue spotting, you know, test that that's all. It's so sad that that didn't come yeah. through from school. Pedro, did that, was that the same for you? I had a good time in law school, but law school sucks. And like, it's not a good place to like, understand people or get to know them it's just not like people talk about like the camaraderie and stuff but it's not it's competitive it's like it's annoying i agree with vivek some of the most interest people doing the most interesting things now i have a friend who's a mayor i've got somebody else who's doing like just wacky stuff i don't want to flag what they're doing because i don't want people to go find them but like like cool wacky stuff i've got oh i've got one guy who like got into like he he runs like an online gambling platform and it's like super successful you never have thought this guy would do this in law school. And now he runs this like empire. I mean, I do some crazy shit. I don't think people would expect me to be here doing this thing. Um, uh, and, and here's the thing about the law, man. And, and, and law school, like Brett Kavanaugh is a Supreme court justice. I mean, like th th this is like, like what, uh, you know what I mean? So like, it depends on what we think success is. Like for a lot of people in law school, being a Supreme Court judge is like the epitome of like the, you know, it's the it's the apex, it's the summit, it's all the things. Um, and I think there are some great Supreme Court justices and this isn't political. Like I think there's just some great ones. And I think there's some ones that are there and I have no fucking clue why they're sitting there. Um, and uh, I, mo I think life is like that. I think our whole profession is like that. I think every profession now at yeah, some sure. in some way is is like that where the focus is so much on deep specialization and excellence within that narrow band and what that overlooks is the people like you two and like the people that we know that are really creative thinkers that are good at many different things outside of that box. And I think those are the types of people that I want to work with that I would want around me if I was sort of building my own firm or building an in-house team. Uh, and law, I mean, law school just doesn't know how to value that skill. I totally agree. And law school is not a creative environment. They do look at, you do sort of like in law school in a weird way, idealize the Supreme Court. In, in a strange way, you're reading so many cases. And I play fantasy SCOTUS. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to hear that. Well, we played, we played, we played fantasy law school. So this was, this was in a particular <laughs> class in my third year. We drafted other members of the class. Me and a few friends had a team and we assigned points for things that people did or did not do in the class. <laughs> That's what the like third year is like. You're literally like. You know, you're too long. We <laughs> had Gunner Bingo. I remember Gunner Bingo being a lot of fun. Um, there's a lot of like AOL. I'm old. So, well, I guess we're all the same. But like, there's a, there was a lot, a lot of AOL Instant Messenger happening in class, which was a lot of fun. And then Facebook came on the scene, and there's a lot of Facebook messaging happening in class. Um, my gr my fondest memories of law school have nothing to do with the work, like the school work. It has to do with like cool weekends with friends, days at like. 
the couple days after exams was really the only time you got to see people shine like in a like way where they weren't stressed about something for a few days. And I thought those were like the cool, you know, uh, cliff note days of, of law school for me. And I went to a great law school. I have a I good fun. story. I mean, yeah, go for it. <laughs> that made me think of a good story. It was one of these classes where the group, I'll tell you, it was one of these classes where the grade was, the grades were posted on the wall, you know, like at a certain time in a certain hallway, everybody's grades would be posted. And I remember, you know, professor posts the grade and people are all nearby and somebody, people are just kind of quietly walking up, looking at the sheet and then walking away. Right. So I do that. I'm up there. I'm looking at the sheet. I look, I walk away. Just a, a few feet in this this girl comes up next to me, looks at the sheet, and just turns around and audibly yells, Yes! Yes! <laughs> in front of everybody. I'm, I'm sure she's doing great now. <laughs> she's in-house. <laughs> Good for her. Yeah. Good for her. I mean, that uh, kind I of was, passion was, about uh, law school exam. Happy for her. I don't know, man. I don't know, dude. I don't know. Vivek, if you could do it all over again, would you go to law school? Absolutely. This is this yeah. is the right feel for me, man. I, I I was this close to going into economics and I made a split decision. I actually I took the LSAT on a whim and applied to one school and said, if I don't get in, I'm not going to law school. And I'm so glad I did. This is this is the right kind of analytic just profession for me. But I I, I wouldn't have known that. I didn't know a single lawyer when I applied. How about you guys? Would you do it again? And Pedro, you go first. Me? Let me go? Uh, no. Yeah, no, I, 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 I would not. I would <laughs> not. I would fucking like, I, I, and, and not because I dislike it. I, I have a good time. I've met good people and done good work. I just think like, it's just not creative enough for me, man. Um, I, too much of our analysis is looking back at prior analysis. What has happened to figure out what to do to me is not my favorite level of analysis. And that's the whole profession. I mean, we were talking about law school reading Supreme Court cases, right? We look to the past, we're very precedent focused, and we shape the future that way. And I just don't think it's innovative enough. There's a thousand lawyers going to disagree with me and call me a crazy person and all that shit. And that's cool. But I'd probably go down a different path. I'd still do it because it really kind of like saved me at a time when I was really like, I, I had this job after college at ESPN. I was like extension of college. I was partying all the time. I wasn't focused on anything. I thought to myself, I'm pretty interested in this. You know, let me apply and see. You know, I applied to more than one school, but but like let me apply and see. And if it feels like the right thing, you know, I'll give it a shot. And and it and luckily it did. And it I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it, but I knew there were a lot of uh, vectors for for positivity to come through it. And it for me, it just came at a time when I really needed to focus on something. That something's not perfect. You know, law school's not perfect, but I, I do appreciate the way it taught us to think because I think that's valuable in life. I agree, Pedro. Like, it doesn't allow us to be as innovative as we'd like, and it's completely imperfect in its execution. And, you know, for fuck, we studied book research and went through a library, like shepherdizing cases with a book. Like, nobody does that shit. So, like, they're really like, I don't know if they still do that, but like it, 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 hopefully it evolves to a point where there's definitely a segment of 
There's a segment of the job that allows us to be innovative. So I'm glad to be in that segment. That's the key. I That's the key. Like the reason I actually am fine in doing this is we work in a practice area in an area of law that is not settled. I, no disrespect to tax lawyers, I couldn't do it because every decision is asked and answered. Well, not everything is asked and answered, but conceptually everything's been addressed and you're just nuancing the concepts. No, I don't, uh, 200 years of bodies of law on uh, the, I'd be dead. My brain would be fried. I like the unknown of privacy. I like that in every one of these podcast episodes, we're like, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, thank God for that because it keeps me super interested. And there's room for surprises, like big ones, like shifting all, you know, like paradigm shifting surprises. And I, I, And by the way, we can make those surprises and I don't have to be arguing at the Supreme Court. Like if you want to make if you want to send tax law in a different direction, you need an act of a legislator or you need an act of the Supreme Court. Right. If you want to send privacy law in a new direction, build a cool product, you know, just latch on to an interesting product as a lawyer and help them build it and watch yourself innovate the entire practice area. And like that's kind of cool for sure. And that was that was it for me when I was so the first time I had that experience was I was at Shopify. We had released a consumer facing product and I saw people going through the consent workflow that I helped them you made, like man. design. And it just felt it felt amazing. Right. It feels good. Yeah. And what's interesting about your consent flow is it may or may not end up being good enough. And that's I think that's the cool part. Like, you know, like when when the laws settle, when they come around, either your consent flow will inform what we think of as being appropriate for the legal requirements of consent, depending on jurisdiction. But it might not work and you might have to do well, you're not there anymore, but they might have to do it again. And like, I think that's cool, man. Like, that's cool. That's cool. Well, all of us were involved in the discussions around TCF. All of us were involved in these discussions around GDPR consent for ad tech. Ultimately, the IAB took that over and and did it, and it was in place for a while. I was just happy to be in those conversations, in those conference rooms, and you know when we were all meeting just together. And um, that can't happen in lots of areas of, of the law. Can't. I think we're, I mean, we're definitely being like privacy snobs, but like, yeah, I'm glad we're in this practice area for sure. Vivek, what's next at your company, man? Tell us about what the company does and like what you're up to. I'm super interested. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, MetaMap is a digital identity platform. uh, And so think of it this way. It's a platform that enables businesses of all shapes and sizes, largely fintechs, financial services institutions uh, to better understand their customer base. So some of that is KYC, AML, sanction screening, some of that is risk and fraud analysis, some of that is trust and safety, background checks, criminal checks, really anything that you as a platform need to do um, with regards to your customer base that requires access to data. And I think the differentiator for us is uh, we're vertical agnostic. So it's not just a KYC platform or a risk and fraud screening platform, but the key differentiator is the data. Uh, so we're exclusively focused on emerging markets. And so we started out in Mexico, we grew into LATAM, now we're growing into Africa and Southeast Asia. Uh, and we plug into local data sources in those regions. So government databases across many of those countries, uh, local data providers. And so it's reliable data in you know, many ID check companies, they just look at the picture that you scan in, and that's it. Uh, and the premise here is, 
you know, the, the idea of re- reliable data checks shouldn't be something that's limited to the first world or uh, the US or Europe. It should be kind of a global feature. And um, so that that's the product. It's, it's very cool. It's something that I'm very passionate about, kind of user-controlled interactive workflows for identity validation that aren't just sort of invisible. Uh, you know, you get blacklisted somehow. You don't know how it happened. You don't know what the data is. It's decisions that are sort of visible to you based on your inputs. And this, so then you I have to the consider focus on local, local norms, right? Like you have to, we've talked about this quite a bit. You have to think through those things, Pedro, you mentioned, you know, a few minutes ago, like what's the impact on every group, on every country, on every person, not just the law. Yeah. And, and kind of what are the expectations, right? How, how do people expect to be validated? What, is, what are the document sets that are important to them? Is it, is it the passport? Is it some other document? Uh, what are the identity numbers that matter to them? Is it the federal number? Is it some other kind of privately provided number? You, you really have to get in deep. Uh, and that's why, you know, that, that's why our company exists and has grown so much because most companies are just focused on a few key markets, let's be real. And so the ability to sort of say, you know what, we're going to exclusively focus on those underserved countries um, because they deserve these rights too. Uh, you know, privacy is is not a luxury good and should not be. Uh, it was really appealing to me. They're really lucky to have a GC like you, for sure. For sure. I love that you guys are focused on here. emerging <laughs> markets too, man. Like, it's such a... like. Half the world is underserved by tech, man. That's just a, that's just the bottom line. Um, and I, I'm really, it's really impressive that you guys are building your business out from the part of the world that usually gets excluded or comes in as an afterthought. You know, um, something I think especially about especially Pedro. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, just especially if it's a driver, if it's a driver towards more access to financial technology for those exactly and it's not exploitive right it's not like you're mining the data of underrepresented groups and uh, underserved countries for the benefit of everybody else it's like no it's like you're leveraging the data resources that exist there for the benefit of the communities and the businesses operating there i think that is the vibes man and i'm really happy you're doing that something i think about at work all the time um is because like our fastest growing geographies are are the ones you just said, right? Latin America, Africa, Asia um, is where, you know, meta platforms are growing at rapid rates, right? Um, and so like seeing more tech infrastructure being built out in those regions is a, you know, sight for sore eyes for me. Yeah, and that's, it, it, it was sort of a natural move for me from Shopify where the focus was always about empowering businesses, right? Yeah. How do we empower small folks, mom and pops, to, to build something great. Uh, and that's, that's the same premise here. How do we enable businesses to enter these markets and feel confident that they can do so in a way that makes them feel safe? Um, because, you know, otherwise we're just kind of leaving large swaths of, of countries uh, in a space where only really risk tolerant com- companies, and, and that may not be a wide enough set of companies will be willing to enter. And then that just isn't right. Totally agree, man. Thanks for the work you're doing. I'm really happy that you're there. And um, I love the way you just framed that. It is the natural transition from Shopify. It makes perfect sense. And um, scale the shit out of that thing, man. Let's build tech infrastructure in the, <laughs> in the rest of the world and bring everyone along, man. 
Like it's it's when I when I talk about the metaverse, I talk about exactly what you just said all the time, which is if we don't build a open and free and accessible metaverse, we're just going to like replicate the way the physical world is in a virtual world, exclusionary and annoying. And so I think we don't have to do it that way. And I know my company's trying really hard not to. Um, and it, you know, on the business end of it, where you are, like you're, I mean, the, the success of your business and the company you work for, I think, is going to be directly proportionate or connected to the amount of investment these companies make in those countries. And like, that's what, that's what brings the development along. So thank you. This is important work, man. Thanks, man. It's good to see you again. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.